Welcome to the Backyard Astronomer Podcast, where we talk astronomy, space, and science. From the Rockstar Studios, and brought to you by the Rockstar Group and Manzanita Insurance, I am Adam England, the Backyard Astronomer. We have another prodigious Backyard Astronomer interview today, where I am honored to be talking with Homer Hickam. When I was 13 years old, I watched a movie roughly based on Homer's memoir of his adventures with amateur rocketry in the late 1950s, and it sparked in me a personal passion for space. However, we know Hollywood takes certain liberties in telling even the best true stories. So I was ecstatic when one of my childhood heroes agreed to be on the Backyard Astronomer podcast to take a deeper dive into his childhood and amazing career. Homer, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Well, hey, Adam, I'm glad to be with you today and uh, get a chance to talk to your audience. I want to start with where your story started. That was in Colwood, West Virginia in 1943. And at the time, you weren't really known uh, by Homer as much, being you're a junior, and that was your father's name. I think everybody pretty much called you Sonny. Is that correct? That's right. I was just at uh, another high school reunion uh, a couple of weekends ago, and um, people didn't know exactly what to call me anymore. And it's like, well, I'm a Sonny with you, so you can call me Sonny now. And that relieved them quite a bit because they do think Homer was my dad. And I understand that fully. But um, as I got a little bit older, it's actually over in Vietnam, uh, I was still going by Sonny, and the captain of the uh, unit that I was in said, I'm not going to call you some kid's name. What's your real name? And so that's when I started being Homer. <laughs> it's always been hard for me to call somebody by a name that I wasn't present for the coining of the nickname. Um, but you were you were Sonny to everybody. I was. My mom called me Sonny. She spelled it S-U-N-N-Y because she said uh, I was always just a happy kid. But uh, when I went to the first grade, uh, my first grade teacher said, um, I'm not going to spell it S-U-N-N-Y. That's kind of a girl's name. You're S-O-N-N-Y. And that'll also remind your dad that he has another son besides Jim. And I went, okay, whatever. <laughs> so uh, we did change the spelling, although mom never did. She still always spelled it S-U-N-N-Y. Does Jim call you Sonny? He does. Uh, I was just talking to him the other day. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was up in Roanoke. Um, he uh, became a high school football coach. And um, he's retired now, but they named the high school football field after him. So I went up up there for um, for that celebration, and he still calls me Sonny, and his wife does too. Uh, she's also a, a Colwood girl. She grew up uh, with us. And that's fine. You know, I'll go either way. That's, uh, it, both of them work. And so what was it like for you and Jim and others growing up in, in Colwood in the 1940s? Well, you know, uh, uh, the 1940s and 1950s, we didn't really know much else, of course. Um, it wasn't, uh, I, I think a lot of times that people think growing up in a, uh, uh, a, a cold town um, uh, early on like that must have been awful and rough and all that kind of thing. And, and it was for, um, for some. But uh, when we grew up, Colwood was a, uh, a very hardworking town. The coal mine was very viable. There was a lot of coal coming out of there. Uh, the coal miners in Colwood uh, uh, had uh, were, were paid pretty well. And so uh, we just didn't know any other way of life. What we 
And we also didn't know that, in fact, coal wood was dying a little bit every year after year because uh, the coal was starting to play out uh, underground. So uh, we watched coal wood uh, gradually over that period of time start to diminish uh, more men being laid off, uh, more people leaving coal wood, houses being abandoned, and so on. So um, it was a, it was a, we were in the midst of a transition. And what were your passions during this time? Granted, you're, you're still very young. What were you into? What did you do as a kid? Well, I was really nearsighted. I had um, 2,400 in both eyes, uh, which meant, and they didn't find that out until I was in the fourth grade. So, uh, which explained, they just thought I was uh, clumsy, and that's why I kept running into trees. Or I wanted to be the teacher's pet. That's why I sat up front in the, in the classroom. But it was because I simply could not see. Uh, so that meant uh, reading. I loved to read. Then I could do. I, I held the book real close to my face in the process. So I, uh, right from the very beginning, well before I went to school, I was about four years old when I started to read. Mom can't remember teaching me, but I uh, somehow learned. And uh, so I was just a, uh, a big uh, book reader and um, then because I love to read so much I did start to write early on I had my own newspaper in the third grade so uh, my teacher then said you know what Sonny uh, you keep this up someday you could make your living as a writer and I thought to myself why wait so that's why I started my uh, my newspaper unfortunately I wrote a, uh, an article about my mom falling down in the creek and she took my first amendment rights away and I had to close my paper down <laughs> no more freedom of speech, freedom of the press. No, uh, my mom had her ways, and it's like, no, you're not going to make fun of me all over this town. You just forget that, kid. So, uh, now, so you've yeah. written some, um, some fiction and nonfiction. When was the first like story that you wrote? Well, I wrote um, a fiction piece again, again in the third grade. It's, my teacher noticed that. Um, but uh, if you get around to what happened later on, um, uh, the first uh, book that I had published was a nonfiction um, historical, uh, military historical about the U-boat war along the East Coast during World War II. And then the next book was the one I'm known for, the memoir, uh, Rocket Boys. But, I, you know, I, I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, both are fun to write. It kind of depends on what mood I'm in uh, and, and the year that it, that it happens. And with the U-boat story, I think that kind of stemmed from a passion for, for diving. Is that correct? Well, it combined, yeah. Um, I, loved, um, I loved scuba diving. I became a scuba instructor in 1973. But uh, and then, um, I combined that with writing. And uh, I was a freelance writer um, uh, throughout the 1970s. But that led directly to being assigned uh, by a magazine to go up and uh, dive on a U-boat that had just been found in the early 1970s off North Carolina. And uh, as soon as I got on that U-boat and started wondering, well, why is it here and so on, that opened up uh, my thought process, my imagination, uh, enough that I wanted to, to get all of that information I could, which ultimately led to uh, writing Torpedo Junction. Had you always enjoyed the water? Were you an outdoorsy kid? Were you playing in the lakes and the rivers? Or was there a lot of that in West Virginia? You know, I'm from northern Arizona, so water to us is, you know, two inches of water. That's a raging river. 
Well, uh, yeah, same thing in Colwood. There was a creek behind their house that we would go wading in and try to catch crawdads. Uh, but um, but there was a swimming pool uh, over on uh, on the other side of another mountain uh, in the county seat of Welch. And so our grade school principal borrowed the church bus and loaded all of us kids up during the summer and drove us over that mountain to the swimming pool. And uh, he taught me to swim. And I immediately uh, absolutely loved it. He, he told my mom I was a fish. <laughs> And uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I always thought that someday I'd like to, because scuba diving was just starting in the 1950s. So there was a there was a um, TV show called uh, Sea Hunt uh, with um, with Lloyd Bridges in it, and uh, that was one of my favorite uh, favorite shows. So, so somehow someday I guess it was kind of ingrained in me. I wanted to learn to be a scuba diver. Did you have a pretty close-knit group of friends? I, I assume being in a, a community, a small town like that, a lot of people work for the same company. There's not a lot of transients. There's not a lot of incoming, outgoing. It's a lot of the same people the whole time you're growing up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what ultimately uh, allowed the Rocket Boys to be a success. We grew up together, uh, except for Quentin. He was the um, the prototypical nerd of all times. He was the brains in our outfit. He lived in another coal town. Uh, but uh, the other boys and I had uh, known each other uh, just since we were infants, I guess. Uh, you're right. Um, our our fathers were coal miners. Uh, they were uh, uh, just uh, totally connected to that work. And so we knew each other from that regard. And then our <clears throat> our mothers, of course, were the wives of coal miners. So we immediately had a lot in common. We met um, uh, uh, for for certain when we started recognizing each other in the first grade. And there we were all the way uh, through the 12 years till high school and graduation. Now, in the Rocket Boys memoir, it talks about how you were pretty much expected to either grow up and mine coal or work in some capacity of the coal mining industry or, or support structure in the town or be one of the lucky ones, I think is how you put it, and get like a football scholarship. Is that really the only options? Yeah, well, <laughs> for the boys, um, what you what our fathers had done and our grandfathers had done, and, and predictably that's what we were going to do, uh, we were going to end up working in a coal mine or go in the military. That's, uh, and just a very, very tiny percentage possibly could get a football scholarship. So those were kind of the three options that you could look forward to. I might say for the girls, it was even more limited. They couldn't even go to work in a coal mine then. Um, Essentially, they would either marry a coal miner or have to leave town and maybe if they were really, really lucky, somehow become a secretary or a nurse, which was about the only profession that was uh, was open to uh, to women at that time. Uh, so, yeah, our um, our outlook was uh, quite limited. Uh, however, uh, what happened, what really broke all that apart, and it, just, it wasn't just us in that little town of Colwood, but all across the United States, uh, there were a lot of uh, what we call company towns, mill towns, um, uh, steel towns, and that kind of thing, where it was expected generation after generation that you would just follow in your father's footsteps. But um, Sputnik really broke that apart. Uh, it, it's, um, it's, it's hard to believe or even understand 
how it did change our lives. Uh, when Sputnik was launched, it shook the uh, powers that be uh, in the United States so much that they decided that they've got to change the generation that was coming up at that point, um, re-educate them in any way they possibly could to get them uh, more interested in technical things or that we were going to lose uh, the Cold War to the Russians. So almost overnight, um, our studies changed, uh, the books changed, the teachers were directed to be a lot tougher, um, and the uh, the classes, and what we call STEM now, was, uh, was uh, enhanced and uh, focused on. So uh, they created uh, new goals for us, and at the high school I was going to, Big Creek, uh, there was all of a sudden a college prep um, a course uh, that we would take, or a series of courses that we would take with the idea that we would go to college. So all of a sudden, our whole perspective changed just because of that one little satellite that the Russians launched. And I bet now they wish they'd never launched it. <laughs> well, and that's, that's 12 years <laughs> basically into the Cold War. You've got Operation Paperclip at the end of World War II that brought over like 1,600 German scientists and engineers to dissect the V2 and their other technology that they were working on. And now we've got people that are working for us now becoming naturalized American citizens and working on things that may have a military aspect, but may also have other civilian purposes. And the Soviets were the ones that beat us with Sputnik. We were working on other projects, but they got it up first. Well, yeah, uh, yes and no. The, the Germans that were brought over uh, for Operation Paperclip, which included, of course, Dr. Werner von Braun, who's the best known of all of them. They were essentially sent to white stands at first to launch whatever V2s that could be brought over from Germany so that we could learn something about that technology. And then they were shipped off uh, right here in Huntsville, Alabama, where I live now, Redstone Arsenal, which they thought was the backwater of the world. It they really wasn't much at they that were time, was it? No, it was the, called the watercraft capital of the country. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what watercraft is, but that's what it used to be known for. I don't think you can find much around here right now. Um, so they came in here um, and basically just were sequestered under um, the uh, bl uh, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, and they they were working on a rocket called the Redstone, which is essentially just an upgraded V2. And that was entirely military. And so although Von Braun and, and some of the others really lobbied the Army to let them do things that would be more like space-oriented, uh, civilian space-oriented, um, they were basically told to sit down and shut up um, that they were going to let um, – if there were going to be any, any movement into space for the United States, it would be entirely under uh, civilian control. Uh, so, uh, even though some of the technology of, um, of the Von Braun team, the V2, was used there, there were a lot of American engineers that were going off in different directions uh, over and above them. And so, um, it's interesting, of course, how it, how it all evolved uh, once um, the Sputnik happened and it shook up everybody in the United States. They let Von Braun go do his thing. He had the capability with a redstone with some solid rockets on top to get a satellite into orbit. And once he did that, he became so famous that um, uh, essentially NASA just absorbed them and formed the Marshall Space Flight Center here in Huntsville, and, and they took off from there. And it could have gone a totally different way, though. They could have kept uh, the German team suppressed forever. It slowed us down a little bit, but I think that um, 
the United States still had uh, some really, really fine engineers that uh, could have, uh, it might have taken them a little bit longer, but they could have eventually built something very similar to the Saturn V. Was that project and that, that work, Dr. Bill Brown, and, and that stuff common in the media? Was it known to you prior to Sputnik, or was he not even a name? Had you, had you even heard of him prior to Sputnik? I was vaguely aware of him, like a lot of kids. He was uh, actually on, uh, well, we, we got our first television in 1954 uh, there in Colwood. And it was interesting, you know, the company store started getting these uh, television sets in. We were, we were all curious about it, but you could not build an antenna high enough to actually pick up a, a television signal. So Colwood had one with the first uh, cable television systems in the world. Uh, the, the, the company built an antenna on top of a mountain and actually cabled TV into our houses so that we would, uh, or our parents would go buy TV at the company store. It was pretty cool. Uh, so, um, so around 1954, we started our favorite program, uh, besides Friday Night Wrestling, was uh, Disneyland. And um, and uh, Walt Disney had this uh, really smart-sounding uh, man on who uh, who turned out to be Werner von Braun talking about going into space. And so we I vaguely knew about him, certainly recognized his picture. And so when Sputnik happened and everybody started talking about this fella, we were already aware of him and uh, thought, uh, well, if Walt Disney liked him, I guess we'll like him too. <laughs> Nothing more American than Walt Disney. <laughs> exactly. So, October 4th, 1957, the Russians launched Sputnik. 96 minutes later or so, it's made a full orbit. They're calling up Nikita Khrushchev. The world knows within hours that we've we've now entered the space age. Things have changed. Did you see it the next day, that week? How did it affect you, and what was your experience with that? Yeah, actually, um, that was a Friday, um, and depending on, well, you know, they're, they are ahead of us in time, uh, but when we heard about it, it was like Saturday morning, so that was a weekend, and um, uh, and I didn't really know what to make of it, and uh, there, it wasn't like you could go out on the internet and find out more and so on, you're kind of depending on whether you just happened to, to turn on the radio when somebody was talking about it, or there was a, like a 15-minute uh, uh, news show in the evening, and that was it. So I uh, wasn't quite sure of the impact until uh, like Monday, and that's when uh, uh, it just seemed like that um, that on the radio and on TV there was nothing else but. I mean, uh, Congress was all sh- shook up about it. President Eisenhower claimed he wasn't, but he really was, and so we kids immediately started talking about it and worrying about it and um but um also in the newspaper was well uh sputnik was going to fly over west virginia and they named the date and the time and like going right over southern west virginia um so i i thought to myself hey, i'd really like to see that because uh, everybody was talking about it it's the biggest thing in the whole world and uh so that's when i um uh, told my mom I was going to go out in the backyard that night and see if I could see it. And um, she started talking to the neighbor lady who talked to the neighbor lady to talk who talked to the neighbor lady on down the road there. And um, I don't know exactly how that message got garbled, but it might have been that the way it got told was that you could only see Sputnik from our backyard. So 
that night when it was supposed to show up, our yard was filled with people come to see it. Um, and my dad walked out and said, "What? why are these people in our yard, Elsie? And she said, they've come to help Sonny watch Sputnik. And he said, well, they can all just go home. I don't think President Eisenhower is going to allow anything Russian to fly over West Virginia. And uh, But um, unfortunately, uh, Ike was not in charge of the laws of physics. And uh, and Sputnik showed up. And you got to realize how clear the sky was back then. And, yeah, the light pollution uh, was just totally different. Yeah, we didn't have street lights uh, like we do now. We had some, but very few, most, mostly around the coal mine. Uh, but where we, I was in the shadow of a mountain, it was the stars were just, just like pristine, except for the fact that the mountains were so close together. Then it was kind of a narrow swath of sky we were working with there. But uh, the way Sputnik oriented itself, it went right down our valley. So I guess to see it for a considerable period of time, all of us did, and uh, it was like, uh, uh, to us seeing it, I've seen the space station fly over numerous times, and my memory is that Sputnik, as, as tiny as it was, was nearly that bright and that impressive. And so, I mean, if it had been God himself in a golden chariot flying over, I, I could not have been more impressed with that. And I know I was supposed to be afraid of it, and all of us were supposed to be afraid of what this represented. But I have to say, uh, as mentioned earlier, I was a big reader, and science fiction was one of the things I loved to read, and a lot of kids did back then. Um, and um, and so we immediately, uh, as soon as they came in and said, okay, we got to get you this whole generation uh, educated up in, in, uh, in the technical field and get you off to college, well, immediately I started thinking about uh, uh, what can I do now to prepare myself for it. That, that ultimately led to me telling my folks, uh, I'm going to build a rocket, uh, which my dad ignored. And my mom looked at me and said, with a very serious face, don't blow yourself up, which I took as permission to go build that rocket. Yeah, just with precautionary measures. Well, yeah, <laughs> you should have known better. <laughs> you know, for me, when, when I saw the movie and I was 13, I went out and bought a Estes model rocket. That wasn't a thing at the time. You couldn't do that. You had to start from scratch. Right. And thank goodness I couldn't because I probably would have saved up my um, – my newspaper uh, delivery uh, money, my quarters and, and nickels, and bought an Estes kit, and that would have been the end of that story. So, um, no, there, there wasn't anything. Uh, but, it, you know, it wasn't just me. I, across the United States, a lot of kids uh, suddenly decided they wanted to build a rocket. Now, most of them didn't stick with it like, like we did. That's, that's kind of a difference. They got out, and they, maybe they blew up something, or maybe they even got one to fly, but that was it. Then they went off and did some other things. For some reason, we just got it in our heads. Uh, the boys that I recruited in what I called the Big Creek Missile Agency, named after a high school, um, we just got so serious about it. And then a lot of things really started to happen. Uh, as my mom predicted, my dad started paying more attention to me, which he never did before because of it. And... Um, also, our school, um, we had a new science teacher, Miss Riley, Frida Riley, who, um, since we were basically going to a big uh, high school football uh, school, uh, she wanted, she felt like with, um, with the increased emphasis on science that um, 
that these boys that were building rockets were just the thing. And so she kind of adopted us and uh, started pushing us toward um, taking our designs and going to a science fair. I wasn't interested in that, frankly. Uh, I was just enjoying and, uh, too much just learning how to build these rockets and going through all the iterations for it. Um, but uh, ultimately, she won me over. Prior to this, had you built anything else in the machine shop? Had you learned how to use the machines, or were you playing with wood or other elements at the time? No, I couldn't even change the sprocket chain uh, on my uh, on my bicycle. My dad had to do that. You just weren't mechanically inclined <laughs> at that time. I would. I was no. I, you know, I've I've uh, met so many engineers. They they go, well, you know, when I was a kid, I took an alarm clock apart and and put it back together again to see how it worked. I had no interest in that whatsoever. Uh, I think it was more of the adventure uh, part of it. Again, I was so impressed by science fiction and so on um, that, um, but I, I learned very quickly in order to do what I wanted to do, and that was to build a rocket. Um, I had to start learning this stuff. I had to get better in math. I had to to uh, to go down the machine shop and uh, beg my way in there and get somebody to either do it for us or show us how to do it. Uh, so. Um, it was, in effect, uh, we got really, really good basic engineering training uh, by learning how to um, to build these rockets from, as you say, from scratch. What was your favorite science fiction author or novel at the time? Oh, Heinlein, for sure. I enjoyed his stuff. Um, I mean, the thing about about his uh, his novels were they were uh, they weren't. They weren't. They didn't have fantasy in them. Uh, there wasn't anything magic going on. Uh, all his characters were were doing something through real scientific engineering principles, and so they were doing real stuff and and uh, getting in danger because of it. But I just really enjoyed that sense that he gave me that this could really, really happen. Uh, but there were things that you had to learn how to do in terms of rocket propulsion and and uh, and getting in a spacesuit, how spacesuit will travel, you know, and then actually going to real like blue collar work on the different planets on the moon and so on. That that for some reason just really appealed to me. So when did you guys come together, and and how did you choose, or did it just organically happen as far as your group of friends? Was it the same group that you'd been with since kindergarten and first grade, or was it uh, there was a certain group out of the school that expressed interest in what you were doing? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they were really kind of my best friends. I have to say we we had just, uh, done a lot of things together over the years. Uh, uh, Roy Lee was, was one of them. Odell was one of them. Uh, Billy, ultimately, we brought him into the fold. He wasn't in the movie, but we brought him into the fold. Um, so we just done a lot of things together, and they expressed an interest. Uh, and I, you know, we had a lot of other boys there in town as well that uh, I had known over the years. But um, but uh, these those two, um, and also Sherman, um, who uh, had polio, and so he was kind of limited, definitely in terms of sports and so on. Um, they just expressed an interest when when I started talking about uh, building a rocket. So. So yeah, that's how we that's how we came together. Ultimately, there were six boys, and uh, and with some uh, kind of supernumeraries that uh, I write a little bit about in um, 
in, in the memoir Rocket Boys that would they would come and go. They would come in in the club and then then leave the club and and it would depend on what else that they were doing, whether they could actually join in on one of our launches and so on. But the the core group uh, were were six boys, and uh, we were the ones that would meet and and talk about what we were building. And Clinton, Clinton, I, I mean, I have to say that that really uh, five of us just thought it was a lot of fun to build a rocket, but Clinton kind of brought rigor into the program he took it said, well, there's no reason to yeah i mean there's no reason to do this if you don't learn something and what are you learning uh so you have to you have he kind of brought in this body of knowledge thing what are you learning in, in the process of doing it of course we often say shut up quentin you know we know what we're doing he could no you don't i mean yeah we we started to build rockets that would fly but he'd say well uh, why didn't it go to that altitude? Well, because it just did. Well, why? You know, and so um, he kept challenging, challenging us um, to figure out why. And finally, it kind of clicked into my brain, too. You know, why am I doing this? I mean, the whole idea was, well, maybe uh, I saw Bernard von Braun and I wanted to go work for him someday or, or do something in the space business. Uh, why am I doing this if I'm not really learning something? But we were learning things without even knowing it. I mean, those machine shop skills that you're talking about, all of a sudden, I knew how to operate a drill press. All of a sudden, I knew how to operate a milling machine. I knew how to weld. I, I started to learn all this stuff that I never had any interest in uh, uh, whatsoever. So uh, it, 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 one of the lines in the book that's pretty well known is that all of a sudden, I realized I could learn anything if I had a reason to learn it. And and that was very important to me. That really opened up a lot of avenues for me. I think two of the things that were most profound to me in the book was one, when, like you're saying, Quentin wanted to analyze. What did we change? Well, let's change one thing at a time. And when the shop machinists right. came back and they'd made multiple changes, he was he was very frustrated <laughs> because he he wanted to analyze. If we make one change, how does that affect the outcome? And you couldn't necessarily do that as scientifically. But the other thing was that you really pushed for that calculus class and six students were allowed to take it and you didn't have the grades good enough and somebody else applied and you got bumped to position seven. So you had to actually take the, the initiative to learn that on your own. Well, that's right. That's when I learned what irony really, really means. So <laughs> but let's drop back to that um, changing one thing at a time thing. That, uh, you know, reflecting on it, we went through the same thing that Vernon Von Brown and his team did with the Saturn V. He, he wanted to test everything one at a time, but they were supposed to get to the moon in the 1960s. Uh, so he was forced. I, I, don't, let's see, I don't know if it was Webb that was a NASA administrator at that time, but whoever it was, forced the Von Brown team to adopt an all-up strategy. In other words, they put, they assembled the entire Saturn V and launched the entire thing at once. And uh, Clinton would have would have uh, would have had a heart attack over that because he was dead set against it. But in fact, that's what happened with us as well. Um, just change one thing at a time. We didn't have time. We were only we were in high school. We we're going to graduate eventually. So somewhere along the line, we had to start combining things. And the machinists uh, they like to do change things and so that kind of forced it on us but it was also what you learn is to be able to analyze the results so you look at the whole thing 
and uh, you see, well, the nozzle has eroded here. We need to change that. Oh, the, that fin ripped off. Obviously, we need to change that. Whatever it was, um, but that's where the calculus came in that we, Mr. Riley got us a book called Principles of Guided Missile Design that, that allowed us to start design these, uh, designing these sophisticated uh, nozzles. We had the capability at the machine shop to have them made. Question is, what do they look like, and how do you how do you input that information? Which you know, we had to figure out the specific impulse of whatever propellant that we were using was one of the first requirements, and then also whatever materials that we were we were were available to us. We didn't have access to everything, um, but uh, we had steel tubing, so that that gave us um, a certain weight that we were involved with that we needed to lift but also strength uh, so there were just a lot of different calculations that we that we, we could play i could have let quentin do it all but i was too stubborn uh i wanted to learn it as well so even though i didn't get the calculus class i got the book that um that my dad used to teach himself calculus he needed to know it for to figure out the ventilation and the coal mines it's a pretty complicated uh, uh mathematical first of mathematical and... environment yeah, everything. Yeah, and so in, I mean, actually, in the minor venturi tubes, in effect, um, the air goes whistling past a shaft or or a, what a tunnel, which we call drift, and air is sucked out of it. How much air is sucked out of it? What velocity? And so, uh, my dad already had uh, had a book there, uh, self self teaching uh, calculus, and so I devoured that and was help. I was able to do a little bit of it. He was much better at it. So. I never admit that, but uh, to him, uh, but uh, but of course he was. So, how many total rockets did you build in that time and launch? Well, there were the, uh, the last rocket was Ox Thirty One, which they called the Miss Riley in the movie, and but but we built. I would I think it was probably closer to around forty because we sometimes would have different iterations of the same rocket, and that that, com that comes back to. Uh, just changing one thing at a time. And okay. So we did that for a while. So we had like Oct 14A and Oct 14D, Oct 14C, and so on. So I would guess it would be around 40 rockets. Even and then uh, that included uh, the one that blew up my mom's rose garden fence, which was actually a bomb. It's technically just a bomb. Well, that's kind of like a static fire test. Did you have other like static fire tests um, other than just throwing stuff into the the water heater? Did you also do other tests with a, not a complete rocket. So you had way more than 40? Yeah, I mean, Clinton would come up all all kind of different ways that we could, um, could test to see what kind of thrust we were getting out of these rockets. Um, they were way too complicated for me. So what I ultimately ended doing was simply taking my mother's uh, bathroom scale and um, taking a, uh, a short rocket and putting it um, upside down on that scale and seeing how far it went off, how far the scale went around. This was not a really good idea since one time, I mean, it worked a couple of times, but then I got the pogo effect where it essentially just battered that scale to oblivion, and I had to, had to buy mom a new one. So, uh, honestly, the we, we were not very successful in getting good results uh, from from static testing. We just didn't have the capability, didn't have the time. It's easy just to launch a damn thing and see if it would um, come close to the, to our calculations in terms of uh, of altitude. Altitude was the 
really about the only thing that we could determine with some accuracy. We built uh, a theodolite to allow us to um, to be able to to use trig to uh, figure out uh, altitude when it was within sight. And after a while, after they got going so high we couldn't see them, basically we just had to use physics. We would, and that, that's when we were using zinc dust and the sulfur. So the propellant was burned really fast. Within a half second, uh, most of the propellant was burned. So essentially what you have here is a cannonball going straight up in the air and you could use, um, well, what poor Jake Gyllenhaal used in the movie, S equal one half AT square. Theoretically, he was proving range, but actually that doesn't prove range at all. That proves altitude. That's like for the, for the height altitude. of the parabola. <laughs> exactly. Not, not range. I guess you could extrapolate from that. But anyway, um, I pointed that out to Joe Johnson, the director, when I saw the scene. And uh, he said, I said, you know, I could give you the right, the right equation there. And, and it was like, we've torn the set down, Homer. Jake's already, he did a great job on it. And by the way, we're just trying to sell popcorn here, okay? So <laughs> I let it go. I let I let several things go for just that reason. That, that's reminiscent of, I think it was Neil deGrasse Titan, uh, Tyson that pointed out to James Cameron that the skies during the Titanic scene were the incorrect stars for the North Atlantic in the winter. <laughs> you know, and they're like, okay, well, how many people are really going to know that? Yeah, we're trying to sell yeah, popcorn. Yeah, really. <laughs> and that's yeah exactly and so you know um they have a limited budget and uh, i i get that they don't have to be exactly exactly accurate on everything most of that just if you're telling a good story you're so immersed in it that those kind of little inaccuracies just poof you know they're gone you don't even pay any attention to them it's just for those of us that are on set and maybe happen to write the memoir of the whole movie might notice that, uh, you know, that's not quite right, but uh, I got exactly what Joe was telling me. And you've referred to it as a feel-good story, and, you know, in reading the actual book, I certainly see the, the, the differences and the changes that they made and, and artistic liberties that they took as, as part of their Hollywood, but it still had an impact on me. You know, as soon as I went and watched this movie, I was, I was about 13 years old, and I had helped some friends with moving, loading a U-Haul truck. And as payment, he had been involved in some amateur rocket contest and he had a bag and I believe it was potassium nitrate. And it was these little fuel chips and I got a coffee grinder and I ground them up and I mixed them 50-50 with sugar. And then I rode up to the, the dollar store and I got some 90 proof rubbing alcohol just like they do in the movie. And I made it into a paste and I cut the top off of a hairspray can I buried it in the ground, and the first time I lit it, the flames went higher than the roof of my, my house, and the fire department showed up, and they said, what are you doing? I said, well, don't worry. I'm a Boy Scout. I, I cleared a defensible space around my fire. Uh, it wasn't the first time that I interacted with the fire department after that, but it, it really inspired me, and I think the movie did that for a lot of kids in my generation. Yeah, and I'm glad for that, certainly, and it also got a, a, a large percentage of them and uh, and the other people watch the movie to go out and read the book, uh, which I appreciate, too, because then you get more of the nuances involved, and it's not just about rockets, of course, it's about family and about life growing up in that coal town, uh, but, um, but having a movie made from your book is like every writer's dream. It's almost, you know, it's really almost impossible to happen. Um, I have... Uh, a circle of writer friends and who know other writer friends and so on and so forth. And I hear, I hear probably once a week, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, my book has been optioned by, you know, they named some 
studio and I say, oh, wonderful, wonderful. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking many are optioned, but few are made. And that is the truth. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult to get any kind of motion picture made, uh, and especially a major motion picture made by a major studio like Universal. So I, I, um, I just reflect on, I think it's kismet. It was just meant to be. Uh, the likelihood of me ever actually ended up working for NASA was very, very slim. I didn't start working for NASA until I was 38 years old, um, and it was almost a fluke that I managed to get finally get a job with NASA. And I'm somewhat convinced that uh, God decided I would need a good ending to Rocket Boys. Uh, it wouldn't have been a good ending if I had never worked for NASA. So. Um, so he or she allowed me to get this job, and by the way, a job which I adored. I woke up every morning and said, oh, boy, I get to go work for NASA today. It was cool. But you didn't jump straight from being a rocket boy to working for NASA. I, in the movie, it kind of presents it almost like a six- or a nine-month, like a one high school year story, but it really was about two and a half years, I believe, that you, you guys were yeah. the BCMA. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, I um, I – argued again i didn't argue with them too much but i just suggested maybe at the end when they said and homer hickam became an, a trainer of astronauts and worked for nasa you might want to add best-selling author to that i mean you know <laughs> really uh but um but they went uh, no. so um so a lot of people see that and, and so that's all they know of me i was a rocket boy when i was a kid and i went off to work for nasa and obviously became a great rocket scientist for nasa which wasn't true i did end up training astronauts is what I did and loved it, uh, starting in the shuttle era and on Space Lab, and then later uh, were, uh, negotiating with the Russians for the International Space Station and being in charge of, uh, uh, of uh, the training programs uh, for the ISS. So really, my career path went a different direction there. But and the reason for that, I mean, I don't know but that had I, when I graduated from Virginia Tech, um, had I applied to NASA at that time, uh, would I have, or one of the contractors, would I have gotten a job? That opportunity simply was not there. Um, the 1960s was not only the Apollo era, but also the Vietnam era. And that's what, that's what faced me was uh, Vietnam. And so uh, uh, I ended up um, uh, being in the 4th Infantry Division uh, in Vietnam. And Anyway, the Apollo program was actually winding down. I mean, it started winding down before we ever landed on the moon. Um, Congress lost heart. Uh, the president lost heart. Uh, everybody did about that. And so uh, Saturn V's were, the manufacturing of Saturn V's had stopped, had stopped before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin ever walked on the moon. And so the Apollo program was, um, was, was in trouble. Engineers were being laid off all over the country in, uh, in the, the latter part of the 1960s. Um, and so the aerospace industry was struggling. So my my uh, career path at that point, I did have a degree in engineering. I was interested in writing, so I did start writing some, but that certainly wasn't going to pay the bills. So I became an engineer and uh, first started working uh, uh, here in Huntsville for the Army Missile Command, and then later over in Germany for the Army Army Training Command over there. And that's where NASA actually hired me, was out of Germany, because uh, I the one course, not the one course, but the best course I ever had at Virginia Tech was, um, was learning how to 
oddly enough, learning how to program in Fortran an IBM 1620 computer. Okay. And uh, I didn't use that until I was over in Germany in 1978 and 79, when the Corps of Engineers, who, uh, uh, who was part of, our, uh, part of my employment, wanted to automate uh, all their work orders. And I said, you know what? We need a computer. And I know how to, how to do Fortran. Let me try. And so they let me try. And uh, sure enough, I was able to create a program over there to automate their work orders. And, that, and, and just as my three-year tour over in Germany was up, I decided on a whim once more to apply to NASA. And lo and behold, they were looking somebody who can automate work orders at Marshall Space Flight Center. And so I came, I lasted about six months in that job, got it done. And then uh, since I was uh, uh, helping to train the astronauts over the neutral buoyancy simulator, I thought, and, and Space Lab was starting to fly. They needed um, uh, training people who could um, work with the astronauts and train them on uh, the science uh, payloads in Space Lab. I raised my hand, I said, I can do that. And uh, so that's what I spent most of my career doing. And the Neutral Buoyancy Lab is a really cool piece of equipment. Like, people don't understand. I, I don't think even a lot of people know it's there. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and, and what it entails? Yeah, it started in the Skylab program or a little bit before that. Um, here at Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, you know, during the Apollo program, and, and Houston, the Johnson Space Center is known best for training the astronauts. But... Um, for various political reasons, uh, up here in Huntsville, they were given responsibility for Skylab. And Skylab was going to be three astronauts that would leave, live uh, within um, that uh, spacecraft for 30, 60, and 90 days. Nobody had ever stayed in space that long. So, um, so how do you train the astronauts to do that? And part of their requirement was to go outside the, the Skylab and actually uh, take experiment packages off and so on. So um, ultimately, Werner von Braun got involved with that. He was the director uh, here at Marshall Space Flight Center, and uh, he went around Congress, uh, who kept refusing um, uh, permission for him to do this. He had a pot of money in, uh, in um, the uh, maintenance of a building, so he took a, a building and maintained it by putting in a 40-foot deep, 75-feet across cylindrical tank. <laughs> and uh, that became the, the uh, not the first, but uh, the biggest neutral buoyancy simulator for many, many years until it was supplanted by the neutral buoyancy lab um, uh, down in, in Houston. But, um, but, yeah, so when the Skylab went up, it, um, uh, it had a problem. One of them was that the solar panel was... Um, was uh, wedged and would not open, and so they needed somebody to go out and do an EVA on that. So um, they, they trained for the astronauts, came P. Conrad and crew came up and trained on that in the MBS, and they got really well known at that point. And uh, so um, when I came on in 81, the Hubble Space Telescope was starting, um, that one was starting to become real, and so a mock-up of the payload bay of the uh, shuttle was put down in our tank, and then also a, a really high-fidelity one-to-one uh, -one mock-up of the Hubble Space Telescope to first train uh, Kathy Sullivan and Bruce McCandless to go out in case anything went wrong, and it did, by the way. They had to go out and unfurl the solar panels, and then later when, there, when it was determined that there was um, a problem with the optics of Hubble, 
we were completely, totally, utterly, fully engaged in training the uh, the crew, uh, along with Goddard Space uh, Flight uh, Center people, uh, to figure out how to go up there and maintain it. So, um, I, as an engineer working on that, and other engineers, we actually went inside the suit ourselves and went down and did uh, figured out a lot of the procedures prior to the astronauts coming up and doing it. So. Um, it really paid for itself uh, uh, a number of times. So you had to learn the procedure. You had to figure it out, create the procedure. I, I'm sure sometimes even creating tools and things for the procedure. And then you had to train an astronaut on how to do that in space. Yeah. Well, you know, that, I, of course, no astronauts ever going to admit that they actually get trained on anything. Uh, and they all figure it out by themselves. And that's fine. Um, so here's the way it kind of worked for Hubble. The Goddard people were the experts on it. And so um, we had a number of engineers uh, here in Huntsville who knew a lot about it as well, but uh, it was really the Goddard team. So they came down. Here we had this very high fidelity mock-up of the Hubble, and essentially they got to change out the op optics in, inside of this. And how are we going to do that? So they sat down and they brainstormed it at first, and then, okay, uh, we need certain tools to be able to do this. Those tools actually have to be built. There was a wrench called the Ethics Wrench. Before we had we took power tools uh, up in space, and that you're, you're dealing with somebody that's basically working inside a balloon, and so you know the the tools have to match the capability somebody in space. So you do all of that, and then it's like we're going to waste the time of bringing up Story Musgrave and Kathy Thornton and Jeff Hoffman up here, uh, and let them tell us how wrong we are, or shall we just take one of these schlub engineers and stick them in a suit and let them go down and, and see if that, if it can be done. And so that's what we would do. We go down and say, okay, this can be done. We can do this. And then, of course, the astronauts would come up and, and run through these procedures. And they'd invariably uh, see something different that they wanted to do or something better that they wanted to do. But at least we gave them a good head start on uh, on their training. So you've, you've said a few names there. And for me, there's, of course, the, the media and the movie portrayals. So we all know who Jim Lovell is. We all know Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. But some of the other names that, that mean a lot to me are like the Charlie Bolden, the Story Musgrave, the Mae Jemison, Sonny Williams, even into you know Chris Hadfield, Mike Massimino, and, and even our Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. These are a lot of people who you know personally. I'm sure you're on a first-name basis with many of them and, and have had a lot of interactions with these people. Yeah, um, well, I have, you know, I, you know, I wrote about that in the new memoir, Don't Blow Yourself Up. Um, when I was, uh, I spent a lot of time um, as the uh, Space Lab J training manager, which meant that uh, I spent a lot of time with Mae Jemison um, uh, over in Japan, uh, and uh, she was an absolute delight to work with, by the way, uh, one of the best astronauts I ever, ever had um, uh, the opportunity uh, to work with. What we were basically training on there were the scientific payloads that the Japanese uh, had created. There were, there were as, I, as I write in the book, there were some uh, cultural problems. Um, uh, I, we worked well with the Japanese, don't get me wrong, but some of the American astronauts did not. Uh, they didn't like the way that they trained and so on. I was a training manager, so I was right in the middle of that. But I had uh, May as an ally, and, uh, and we're still really, really good friends. Mike Massimino, um, uh, probably, I mean, he 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 was on uh, a team that went up, I think, on the third or fourth flight to um, repair and maintain the Hubble, 
Uh, I didn't train him in a tank. I, I was, uh, I think I was retired by then. But uh, when I was over in Japan and came back uh, one time, I found uh, that somebody, I had my own private office by then, but somebody had moved another desk into my office while I was gone. And there I found this great big galoot of a guy uh, from New York who claimed he was a NASA intern and someday he was going to be an astronaut. And that turned out to be Mike Massimino. That's amazing. And uh, so um, uh, I, I don't think this actually happened, but I said, I wish that it had that, uh, that one time when Mike told me that he was going to be an astronaut, I, I replied, Mike, you have about as much chance of being an astronaut as I have of writing a number one New York Times bestseller. I don't think I ever said that, but I've told told it to myself enough times that maybe I did. I don't know. But, um, yeah, Mike's a good friend. Story Musgrave, um, I, I know uh, through through work, uh, very impressive uh, fellow. Um, one thing about Story is he's known as being fairly eccentric, yes. and I guess maybe he is. Um, he came up, um, he had been um, very influenced by Dorothy Hamill. He had met Dorothy Hamill, who's a famous figure skater, and um, for some reason, they had fallen into a conversation, and he, she had explained the story how, um, and again, I tell this, I tell this story in uh, Don't Blow Yourself Up, but she had told story that, um, that, the, that the reason that she was so successful was because she trained end-to-end, in effect, that every time she went out, she did the, the entire uh, dance or, or, or skating performance that she was going to do end-to-end. So that it just became so natural and so normal. So when Story came up to the tank, he'd been up there for a little bit, but uh, when he came up uh, uh, to Huntsville, he said, "We're going to do it like Dorothy Hamill. We are going to. Uh, I want end-to-end runs. We're going to go uh, as many times as it takes. It's totally, utterly choreographed. The repair of the Hubble Space Telescope. Make it muscle memory." Um, Exactly. So we get it. We get it precisely right. It's in our head. We have. So when we go out there, it's just going to be routine. And actually, it's somewhat uh, easier to do uh, to work in space than it is underwater. Even though we do our very best to trim them out, um, there's always there's the resistance of water on the suit and other you know uh, things that would would make it a little bit different. Bubbles going past and all that kind of thing. Um, but when he told us that. Um, uh, our the manager of, of the tank there said, "Well, it's impossible." Uh, and and you know, let me explain decompression to you. Of course, he didn't really need to explain it. The story he knew it very well, but it's like, okay, this tank is 40 foot deep. We pump air down to you. The limit for decompression sickness uh, is 200 minutes at 40 feet. So that you can't stay there more than 200 minutes uh, because then you would be they would possibly get decompression sickness. And the story said, well, we're going to. We're going to run six to eight hours. You just figure it out. And so the only thing that um, that they could do was, well, we've got to have a higher content of oxygen in the air that we pump down oxygen to them. This, yes, it ultimately became what we know now as nitrox. So uh, some divers were still using that, but there wasn't a large quantity of it. So... Um, the Nutribun Simulator, we had to we had to figure out how to create nitrox in the first place, and then uh, pump it down to the astronauts. But there was a problem with that, 
the same problem that with the Apollo 1 fire is that the higher oxygen content, the more likely you're going to catch on fire. And you go, oh, well, you can't catch on fire underwater. But I beg to differ. You certainly can um, inside the suit if there was any kind of spark inside the suit. So, again, they just picked out some of the Porsche Love engineers and stuck us down in there with how high can the, nit- the oxygen content <laughs> of the air that we can be, even we think it might be safe. And oh, by the way, we will train the other divers what to do if you catch it on fire. Uh, so, um, but we were, you know, we were patriotic and we cared uh, so much about everything uh, that we all agreed and, uh, to go in the suit and test it out. We didn't really think we'd catch it on fire or we probably wouldn't have done it. And we didn't catch it on fire, but we were able to, to show the folks down in Houston that no, we're probably not going to burn your astronauts up. And so a story and them came up, and we had any number of end-to-end runs. Um, so when they went up to the Hubble, they made it look easy going out and fixing it. Now you mentioned oxygen and fires, and NASA takes that very seriously. Um, Apollo 1 was a huge, devastating setback to to the American space program as it was just getting off the ground. And since then, we've had two other major space disasters uh, oddly enough, all in the same week at the end of January and beginning of February. One of them was during your time at NASA and one not long after you, you retired, but I, I assume you knew those shuttles and knew some, or if not all of the astronauts that were on those. Right. Well, I was a particularly good friend of Ellison Onizuka, who uh, was one of the Challenger astronauts because he spent a lot of time at the neutral buoyancy simulator. Um, great fellow, and of course I was working Space Lab J, so uh, he was Japanese American, and so we had a lot in common, a lot of things um, to uh, to talk about. Um, I met um, Kristen McAuliffe. Uh, she came up and made a tour of Marshall Space Flight Center, and she happened to be over at, in the tank there when I was working as a safety diver, waiting for our suited subject, which I think was L. Um, to uh, to uh, get, go into the water, and um, she came by, and uh, just a delightful young woman, a huge smile on her face, and um, uh, uh, we tried to entice her into going to getting in a swimsuit and come and go diving with us, but uh, the Houston people wouldn't let her do that, which was a real shame. But um, actually, um, I knew uh, enough about the shuttle to train the crew on activating space lab within the cargo bay. Um, and uh, I do those kind of the environmental systems and so on. I didn't really honestly know much about the propulsion systems. It was not my thing to know. And, um, and I didn't know uh, anything very much about the solid rocket motor. Just essentially somebody asked me, I could have told you how they work. Uh, and broad terms, I love so not personally. Uh, but um, when I was over in Japan, when the Challenger went down, and I uh, got a call um, in the middle of the night um, uh, from my boss saying, "Don't talk to anybody uh, about it." Uh, he was basically saying, "Don't talk to the press about it." It's not a whole lot I could have said anyway. But uh, um, we, the Japanese, treated uh, my little team over there so courteously and with with um, with um, such affection that I, I really never never forgot about that and they were just they were perhaps even more upset than than we were about the whole thing but uh, but we had to stop uh, training over there actually I was preparing for the training over there and I came back um, to Huntsville 
And essentially, you know, Space Lab J was going to be put off indefinitely if it was ever going to fly. So I found myself without a job. And um, they, uh, the solid rocket motor redesign team was being formed, and I asked if I could be on it, and I was. And I learned an awful lot about that solid rocket motor at that point and all about the segments uh, and, and why there were segments and, uh, and the O-rings. And, you know, I, I was aghast that there were O-rings and a solid rocket motor being a, a rocket boy for the Big Creek Missile Agency. Quentin would have never allowed that allowed that but that was a political decision as much as an engineering decision because they wanted to build the rockets up in utah and that meant it had to be in segments uh so those are the things that you have to deal with when you work for nasa that it's not always just straight engineering what's the best way to engineer something but what can we afford and what will congress fund and uh, so i learned a little bit more uh, about life i guess uh if, if, you, if you can say that when i was on the the uh, solid rocket motor redesign. No, I never. In, in terms of Columbia, no, I didn't know anybody on Columbia. Um, but um, but I have to say uh, that um, I wasn't totally surprised. Uh, there was actually a Department of Defense uh, mission that a friend of mine, Hoot Gibson, was the pilot on, and uh, that one also had um, a shuttle uh, or a, a, a tile that was hit by foam from the external tank and nobody knew whether or not it had done enough damage that it was going, it would destroy it if they came in. But uh, they took a deep breath and brought that one in as well. Uh, so uh, that should have been a lesson to the shuttle folks uh, about that, but um, they just kept waving it and waving it. And, and you can do, do that for a while with, um, with uh, any engineering design, but ultimately physics is going to catch up with you, and uh, disaster is going to happen. We've, we've built six space shuttles, and it is inherently a very risky thing to go to space. You're riding on top of a, a rocket, and I never got the opportunity to see a launch. I was only a month old when Challenger um, happened, and I was 13, or I'm sorry, 17, I think, when Columbia happened, but I, I have made an effort to go and visit space shuttles now. We've got Atlantis at, at Kennedy, and we've got Endeavor out in California, Discoveries up in, in Washington, D.C., and then the Enterprise up at, in New York City. Have you gone and visited any of those? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, of course, we have the one-to-one uh, -one shuttle mock-up here that are called the Pathfinder at the Space and Rocket Center at Space Camp. And so, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. And um, I, when I after I trained uh, crews, we would go down to KSC to practice on the real flight hardware, and um, I, I got often the opportunity, and I'd take it every chance I get, to run out and uh, hang out with the pad rats um, and uh, go up on the tower and uh, even get in, inside the cockpit with them uh, inside the shuttle itself. And uh, so I was very, very familiar with, uh, with it, and... Um, uh, the thing about the shuttle is, I mean, seeing a shuttle launch was, I never saw a Saturn V launch, and uh, everything I, I've heard is it's very, very loud and very ponderous as it lifts off. The shuttle was not like that. It was like a jackrabbit. It just bounded off of the uh, off the pad. Those SRBs were just screaming and uh, to get it off the pad in a hurry. I think SLS, should it ever launch, will be more like the Saturn V. We don't know exactly. <laughs> I think it'll be it'll be faster than the Saturn V, uh, but it won't be as fast as uh, as the shuttle. The shuttle design, by the way, that big cargo bay was um, uh, 
again, politics, engineering for space, for American spacecraft is a mix of good engineering and bad politics. And so um, the, um, the shuttle cargo bay was designed, its size was designed because it was supposed to also be able to carry up uh, into orbit certain spy satellites that required those dimensions. And NASA gave in on that. They didn't really need a cargo bay that big, didn't know quite what to do with it. Uh, but um, because they got Department of Defense money to help um, finance the shuttle, so they gave in on it. That's why it's, it's big as it is and um, why they, they really designed around the cargo bay rather than have the cargo bay um, be uh, a part of the whole design. Uh, so, and, and there, the technology of the shuttle was way far, was far ahead of its time, um, but um, the, the, uh, it turned out to be a, uh, I mean, it was very successful uh, for the most part, and it certainly did a lot of really good things, like carry the Hubble up and then build the International Space Station, couldn't have done without it, but it was always a dangerous spacecraft. There was no way if something went wrong, as we saw, with those two, there was no way for the crew to escape. Uh, so when they start talking about man-rated rockets, I have to laugh. I don't think there's any such thing. Um, they're all dangerous, and uh, thank goodness now they're putting the the uh, spacecraft on top so that there is an opportunity to escape. Well, just this last week we saw the the is it the New Origin or the New Shepard with Blue Origin was actually used its escape system. Yeah, um, and by the way, if they trotted out another new Shepard tomorrow, I would climb on it. I would go. I've been waiting for Mr. Basis to give me a call. Uh, he knows my number, so you know, it could happen any day. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, exactly right. It did work. I mean, you, you hate that you have to lose the, the, uh, the booster to, um, to test that, but uh, inadvertently they tested it again. They already tested it pretty well before that, but it definitely worked. I think uh, if there had been a crew aboard, they'd have pulled a number of Gs, and it would certainly scared them to death. Uh, it would certainly scared me, but um, it all was very, very successful. So, yeah, I mean, the shuttle, the idea of putting the crew on the side of it, uh, I mean, the, the, the spacecraft on the side of it, well, they just had to do it. There was no other way to do it if you were going to bring the engines back. Um, it had to be on the side if you're going to use the engines to get into orbit. So that's the way it had to be designed, but it was uh, a very dangerous design. And with political decisions, we've continued with trying to reuse either physical parts of the space shuttle program or concepts from it in, in the SLS. And we saw recently that it got wheeled out to the pad and sat there for multiple days and scrubbed launches. And we've we've seen NASA expend, I, I, I think it's upwards of $20 billion or more on this one program, whereas the individuals, like you mentioned, uh, Bezos, you have Branson with Virgin Galactic, and, and while their programs are certainly more geared towards paid space flight, commercial space flight, you also have Elon Musk, of course, with SpaceX, and then you have Robert Bigelow, who's making expandable habitats. So we've really shifted the concept of what space could be away from it has to be a government-sponsored event. Yeah, you know, NASA's been really superseded by these com commercial efforts. They're able to be more nimble. They're able to, um, to fail and then try again, uh, fail and try again, where NASA 
really can't do that. Congress wouldn't stand for it. Um, but uh, then at the same time, Congress uh, uh, lays on them the, this, uh, this space launch system requiring them to use uh, shuttle components as much as possible, therefore keeping the workforce theoretically in place. It didn't, by the way. Most of them were laid off a long time ago. Now they're having to hire new people to do what the old people did. But that's beside the point. It looked good on paper uh, for Congress. So the SLS is not a rocket that NASA would have designed uh, from scratch by any means. So it's well known. Uh, the hydrogen um, uh, fuel is, um, is very, very difficult to work with. Uh, it was required for the shuttle because they needed uh, the fuel with the best possible specific impulse to get this big old thing into orbit. And as you may recall from the shuttle program, it very, very, very rarely took off on time. Uh, and a lot of that was because the, this hydrogen just leaks like a sieve everywhere. Well, it, that wasn't so awful for the shuttle program. It could um, afford to wait around. Um, but for a moon program, a lunar program, that's not really, really possible because there are some really, really narrow windows that it can use uh, to carry um, the capsule to the moon. So I, SLS was looking real, real iffy, but it still has a lot of congressional support. So NASA's going to try and try and try to make this thing work. My my uh, suggestion was, you know, don't carry humans on SLS. Uh, if you really want to just pump money into it and keep this workforce occupied, whatever, use it for cargo. And therefore, you don't have to worry about these really narrow launch windows, and you don't have to worry about so-called man rating and all that. And I don't know if they're, they're ever going to take me up on that, but uh, anyway, that's that's my uh, my suggestion for it. But it's it's kind of not NASA's fault um, that um, they ended up having to use it. What I think NASA should be doing is advanced propulsion. Uh, they should. This will be the last chemical rocket, I'm sure, that NASA will ever build, um, uh, and they will have to go into advanced uh, propulsion. Uh, obviously, uh, nuclear thermal is the most obvious, but there are others, you know, ion engines and so on. Um, that can be developed, and I think that's where NASA, that's what NASA should be doing, and leave the chemical rockets to the commercial companies, and uh, and let them go with it. So and right now, a lot that's of that's only idea. being used in deep space. Like ion propulsion is being used if we're going to Pluto. Uh, nuclear propulsion isn't really used as much, but we do use like the thermonuclear reactors to power uh, Perseverance, but they're not using it for launch. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think where NASA really shines right now is. Their advanced work. Clearly, the robotic missions to Mars are great success, and robotic missions out to the outer planets and Pluto, huge success. And you see them struggling with human spaceflight. And uh, there, you know, there is a there's a reason for that, and and uh, that it requires just so much more effort and so much more care and so much of everything when you start putting humans' uh, lives. Uh, 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 in jeopardy, and of course they've already lost uh, many astronauts, and so they don't want to ever have to go. They know what happens when that when that happens. They get their budgets get cut, people get laid off, uh, things are <laughs> put off forever. So, um, so NASA doesn't want to ever have anything like that happen again. So, uh, human spaceflight uh, again. Uh, I think NASA should get in the business of. Um, 
uh, building uh, big bad rockets, nuclear, thermal, or ion, or whatever. And um, and then uh, if there's going to be work uh, off this planet by humans, that probably should be a commercial effort, uh, including science. Of course, you need to carry scientists uh, up there with them. Uh, but uh, we'll see. Right now, I, we're right now just in a transition mode. You start. We're starting to see more astronauts flying to space uh, that are commercial. Uh, or pay their way than than there are of the old, old crew down in Houston. I see ultimately the astronauts in Houston dwindling until they finally go away, and uh, everybody will be uh, either commercial or scientists uh, going to the space, much like uh, down in Antarctica. Uh, that's who you see down there. Even earlier this year, we saw Shatner. I think he was 90 years old. Is now one of the oldest people in space. And he flew with Blue Origin, and you have them in Virgin Galactic that are taking payments, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, for a five-minute trip to low Earth orbit, just enough to, to kind of feel weightlessness and come back down. But then you have – SpaceX has gone a completely different direction. A year ago, we had Jared Isaacman, a billionaire founder of Shift for Payments, start the Inspiration4 mission. And on top of a privately funded space mission for – I believe they were in orbit for three days. You also had some huge diversity. We had Dr. Cyan Proctor, who's an Arizona gal, first black female pilot of a spacecraft. You had Haley Arsenault, which was the first human in space with a prosthetic leg bone. And as opposed to NASA, I know they've become much more diverse in recent years, but the Apollo program has been heavily criticized in, in hindsight because it was white males who were Air Force pilots. And... It, it seems like this this lean towards the commercial astronaut is really where we're headed. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, by the way, I got a, a chance to meet the Inspiration4 crew several times. They, uh, Jared is an um, uh, alumni of Space Camp, actually Aviation Challenge. Uh, so uh, he's donated uh, quite a bit uh, to, to Aviation Challenge Space Camp uh, here in Huntsville. Um, and and they're just delightful. They're, it's wonderful that they're able to do this, and um, um, and and now there's this Polaris Four program where where um, he's going to actually do the first commercial EVA, which is going to be a very interesting thing. I wanted them to come here to Huntsville. We have the underwater astronaut trainer at Space Camp. It's not as big as the big neutral buoyancy simulator, uh, but I happened to be involved with the design of that thing uh, back in the 80s. And um, you could you can do EVA training in there, but SpaceX they went a different direction on their training. That's fine. They're, they will do they will do uh, wonderfully. So and that yeah, Dawn mission uh, is is expected to launch in December of this year for that first commercial private EVA. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, really, uh, to see that. Now that will be it's going to be um, using a umbilical, very much like the original. Uh, EVAs were done. In other words, he's going to be attached to the, the airflow coming through a hose, basically to the suit, rather than the way that that we uh, we we do it with NASA, and that is to have a self-contained suit, the backpack uh, is self-contained. Uh, but he he should have. Um, I mean, it's going to be pretty amazing uh, to do that. They're going to depressurize, understand the Dragon capsule, completely be at the end of the flight. And uh, out he goes uh, on the end of the umbilical. So, uh, so I, are, I admire that. They are completely depressurizing the capsule. There's not a separate airlock. No. Okay. I was um, curious about that. 
yeah, it's too heavy uh, to try to add an airlock to it at the, at this point. So uh, yeah, and that's why it's toward the end of the flight. I mean, if they for some reason not able to pressurize, they can just come on in. Uh, at least that's the way it was explained to me. So anyway, it's um, going to be very very interesting to watch. Uh, I mean, again, to me it's all very exciting to see. Uh, we're basically into the second golden age of uh, space flight, human space flight. And uh, it is important, you know, sometimes uh, I poo-poo it just a little bit because I do love what we do, what NASA does with robotics. I think they just did a fantastic job and they struggle with human spaceflight. But uh, the idea of if we're really talking about uh, going and living in space and using the resources of space, uh, right now we don't have the artificial intelligence that could do that for us. So essentially we got to to send humans um, up there. And that's difficult. It's much more difficult than sending a robot. But uh, again, we don't quite have the AI capability to send a robot that can do everything. Uh, and you have an imagination of a human. And notice something that's different uh, that uh, that a human will notice. But uh, just, just to bounce back uh, real quick to the diversity thing is that that's somewhat understandable. Um, originally, um, so when we first started flying the first astronauts and picking the first astronauts, it was considered essentially a, an extension of the test pilot program. And test pilots were expendable. Test pilots were killed real often. And so before before anybody really realized that the Mercury astronauts would become such huge celebrities like they did, um, they were just more test pilots. They were cannon fodder, if you, if you will. Yeah. Um, and at that time, to, to kill a, a woman, uh, that would have been really frowned upon. I know, I mean, I just got to have the sensibilities back in the 1950s. And so um, you, you, you don't mind killing uh, these test pilots who are brave and, and foolhardy and, you know, drink hard and chase women and, and drive Corvettes and do crazy things anyway. Uh, comparing to um, to killing some some poor innocent woman who uh, who may or may not know what they're getting into. Yes, things have changed. I get that, but that's why back then that was the mindset that okay, these are test pilots. We're just if we lose them, we lose them, but we'll keep moving on. Yeah, and culturally, uh, you just so. didn't have women or even people of color who were in the positions to have that knowledge of piloting an aircraft. Right, and that's one of the really cool things about the shuttle. You know, shuttle, we can complain a lot about the design of the shuttle, uh, but the shuttle was designed to carry passengers, uh, uh, astronauts who were not superb pilots. And so that's when we first started seeing real diversities in the crews, and we saw the Sally Rise, who was not a pilot, Nick Cathy Sullivan, who's not a pilot, and, and – uh, uh, and others who were scientists or first or explorers or whatever they were, um, they got a chance to fly into space and do real work in space. And so, um, uh, I mean, that was it was interesting. Kathy Sullivan, I think, was their first uh, woman who we trained in our neutral buoyancy simulator here. And then Kathy has become a real good friend over the years. But at first, we were all uh, kind of afraid of her. We didn't know quite what to make of her. Um, there was uh, quite a bit of discussion on how Kathy was going to be able to go to the bathroom and uh, 
where she could take a shower and whether we all had to abandon the shower while Kathy took the shower. And it's like they finally ended up building about a space about the size of a good, fairly decent sized closet, I guess. That was her entire changing room. And she had a little shower in there. And so, um, so we all had to kind of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, have, have a change in our approach and change in our attitudes. Um, of course, we, uh, even then, um, thank goodness, we had many, many uh, 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 black engineers that were here in Huntsville and also Hispanic. And we had a couple of really good Hispanic uh, safety divers in the neutral buoyancy simulator, Puerto Rico uh, based. And um, so, I mean, we were starting to see all that diversity occur even back in the early 1980s. And it only got better as we went forward. So since I think it's 72, we haven't left low Earth orbit. Who do you think is going to be the first program to actually put humans on the moon? Ouch. Well, uh, I know it's a hard one, but there's a lot of people in competition. A, is, there's I mean, programs. there's no reason why it can't be uh, Artemis. There's absolutely no reason why it can't be Artemis. Um, and certainly if everything works out the way that, um, that NASA wants it to, I think it will. I think the Chinese are taking, there, there are only real competitors here. And I think uh, other than commercial, don't get me wrong, I mean, SpaceX could fool us all and just land, uh, themselves. But just looking at, uh, let's look at countries, uh, China is taking a much more measured approach to it. And, um, they are building a very, practically uh, uh, one rocket to the next and one capability to the next. They do have their eye on the moon, not Mars or any other place, because they see that as a, an economic zone. It's one that they can exploit. There are resources on the moon they need, where NASA's still kind of stuck in this flags and footprints and inspiration thing, and, oh, we're just going to go to the moon's practice, go to Mars stuff, which I think is a foolish way to approach it. A lot is really going to depend on what happens with this first SLF launch and then probably who the next president is um, uh, and uh, whether or not we're really, really serious about uh, uh, determining a, a good reason to go to the moon. For me, it's economic. We're going to go up there and mine the blame thing uh, and bring back resources. Um, and uh, so there are a lot of ifs, ands, or maybes. But... Uh, if we continue to go down this Artemis road, and SLS is uh, not the most wonderful rocket in the world, but we, we just keep sticking with it and making it work, whether we like it or not. You know, China could beat us, or Elon might beat, beat everybody. Now, you've actually written a fiction series, which I have not read, but the title of the series is The Helium-3. And Helium-3 is right. an element that is uh, believed to be in much more abundance on the lunar surface than it is on Earth and potentially usable for a uh, fuel source with diverse benefits over other radioactive elements that we're currently using. Do you think that that is going to be the way that we end up going into space deeper is through the economical aspect of it? Yes, I, I, I really do think so. And then also science, of course, we're going to learn so many things uh, about, um, about what's actually in space that just may totally change everything in the way we look at it. We've never looked at it as a drop of water other than what's on Earth. We've never looked at a drop of water from space. Never. Uh, we don't know what we're going to find. Uh, that's going to be interesting. Are we going to see, are we going to see uh, 
past life forms in there, gonna, or is it going to be just perfectly clear with no life in it? At all? We just don't know. There's so much that we don't know. But um, yes, uh, the series that I wrote, the Helium-3 series, it's, it's a young adult series, and it's set in a Helium-3 mining town. And that's the easiest thing to say that we're going to mine there. Um, and uh, it's basically uh, Colwood, uh, the town where I grew up on the moon. And uh, so I had a lot of fun writing writing that series. But there are other resources on the moon. Thorium is one of them. Almost, you know, you, you talk about mining the asteroids. If every crater on the moon, there's a the remnant of an asteroid underneath it. So I think we're going to find the rare Earth elements that they're always talking about. But it has to be economical. You have it has to be. You have to make profit on this. So you go up there and mine thorium or helium three or whatever it is. That's an expensive proposition. And it's got to be worth it to transport it all the way back. But uh, I'd like to point out that right now, most of the coal that is mined in West Virginia is shipped to India and China because it is economical to do that. They need it. And so to make steel. And so, um, I mean, but that took uh, hundreds of years, centuries, really, to develop uh, that need and that capability and to make it economical. So all that's not going to happen in the next 20 years and maybe 100 years in the future that the minerals on the moon become uh, economically viable. We just don't know. But what I do know is that the country that doesn't start working in that direction is going to be a country that's left behind, and we certainly don't want that. Now, aside from the economic perspective, I've got two quotes here that I really like, and one is much older and one is much newer. The first one is Dr. Von Braun, and he said, I think somehow space flights for the first time give mankind a chance to become immortal. Once this Earth will no longer be able to support life, we can immigrate to other places which are better suited for our life. And then following up with that same sentiment, in a National Geographic, National Geographic interview, Elon said, the future of humanity is fundamentally going to bifurcate along one of two directors directions. Either we're going to become a multi-planet species in a space-faring civilization, or we're going to be stuck on one planet until some eventual extinction event. It, what is your mindset on, on <laughs> humanity traveling to Mars? Well, uh, let me back up just a little bit. Um, one of the things that I, uh, one of my avocations these days is uh, amateur paleontology. So I spent a lot of time uh, in the field, uh, the little team that I have, we found five T-Rexes so far, any number of hadrosaurs and uh, triceratops, and so on. And but in that process, I've worked with a number of professional paleontologists, geologists, and biologists. And the conclusion that I have reached is that um, since Bernard von Braun's day, we have understood a lot better now that. We have evolved over all these millions of years to live on this planet and not any other. And so we have to go, we have to do all kinds of tricks um, to basically carry our atmosphere with us at the correct uh, atmospheric pressure, the uh, correct amount of, of oxygen in the air. Um, the, the correct kind of food and vitamins and minerals and so on, um, uh, and liquids, water, everything, everything. We can't live unless we live exactly precisely like on this planet. So um, that's that sad in a way, 
but um, we also may look forward to humans evolving on other planets. So, um, in, in such in such a way that they can live on that planet. So we're really looking at long term here. Elon's exactly right. If we stay on this planet, ultimately the sun's going to expand and burn us all up. You know, it's going to be billions of years from now, but it could happen. But but we have seen again and again civilizations rise and fall. I think what Elon is is afraid of and and for those of us who like history, we're kind of uh, fearful of is that we have seen over and over again advanced civilizations rise and fall. And what comes behind that is chaos for centuries, um, people dying by the millions and, and awful deaths and, and, and civilization having to start all over again. So uh, if we're at that point, and I think Elon thinks maybe we are, um, is, that, um, is that maybe we better just Get on out to Mars and uh, and or the Moon and 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 that's one of the the plot devices in Helium in the Helium Three series is that our civilizations then can continue elsewhere, but it re you really really have to work hard. You have to work a lot harder than the uh, the pioneers who went west in the 19th century uh, to to live because uh, they they at least had air to breathe. And water to drink, as versus uh, going to the moon and Mars, where there is neither one. Uh, so it's it's not an easy um, um, thing to to even contemplate, but I think it's certainly worth doing. Um, I would much rather uh, see us focus on the moon for right now, and again, for those economical or economic and uh, and science reasons I was talking about. It's it's much easy to access. Uh, we're probably um, not going to lose that many people. We will lose some, but we won't lose as many as we try to go to Mars, which is an awful long way. And there's no hope for you if you're out there and you get sick and, and uh, there's just no way to get back. So, um, so I think we gotta, we really need to uh, crawl a little bit before we get up and start running the marathon that would be Mars. Uh, but um, God bless them all uh, for trying, and I'm behind them all the way, and I sure hope that they succeed. I'm I'm along the same mindset that I I think Elon is very much worried about the Skynet taking over the AI or a nuclear disaster. But there are other extinction level events that do happen in Earth's history. I live 75, 80 miles from Meteor Crater, and that was a, that was a huge impact that really affected the world's atmosphere for many many years. And we are about to bump an asteroid with the DART mission. We're trying to push Didymus a few millimeters off course and then watch it over time and see how we can change its path. Do you find this to be something that would be a more valuable pursuit? Yeah, I like the idea. Uh, as long as they bump it in the right direction, they <laughs> really know where it's going to go. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I have to say that also the, the KT boundary, which is, caused by the asteroid that um, that came crashing in and ended the Cretaceous and all and all the non-avian dinosaurs. There is now some controversy whether that was the final event or not. I've just seen that recently. They're now starting to look again as they had before the they think they saw that iridium layer left over from that uh, giant uh, asteroid um, that uh, vul uh, volcanism um, had perhaps as much uh, to do with um, with that huge extinction event, we got to remember though we had two other 
and probably three huge extinction extinction event before the last of the dinosaurs were wiped out. And um, Earth is a it's a volatile place, and uh, you know the, the continents are all moving around, and uh, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, things that that uh, can happen. But speaking of AI, of course, uh, my idea is that um, I mean uh, an AI um, presence on Mars uh, that that would be really cool. You might have a few humans up there, but Honestly, if uh, it's so easy to die on Mars, there's just you can come up with all kinds of ways to die on Mars, uh, where it might be really, really cool to have a AI presence there that could actually look like humans, and essentially we just operate um, uh, through through their mechanisms. And if they break their arm out there, they don't uh, die. They just we just put a new arm on. Uh, so um, I look forward to AI. Uh, that's, I don't particularly want AI on Earth like that, but I could certainly see it uh, see it used on the outer planets. We could even give them names, you know, and make them look human. It'd be really cool because for most of us, we're never going to Mars, and we're just basically just going to look at other people walking on, around on the Mars on Mars. So why not having have AI? Uh, robots that look like humans walking around Mars. It's all it, to, to us. It may be all the same. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just being a little blue sky there, but I'm just, um, just wondering if maybe that would be the best way to go. Well, Mars is already the only planet we know of that is only inhabited by robots, so it wouldn't be a That's far stretch correct. of the moment. That's correct. One of them's a helicopter. Yeah. is pretty amazing. Ingenuity is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just love it. You know, again, I uh, people say, "Oh, Homer, you hate Mars. You're just a big moon lover, uh, moon hugger." And I go, "No, I love Mars." As a matter of fact, I look at Mars like, my goodness, it looks just like out in Montana when we uh, go hunt dinosaurs. It's got those same layers. Clearly, there's been water here. There, uh, these different layers got laid down uh, by water. So uh, there potentially could be some very interesting uh, uh, life forms there. Or, or at least evidence of life forms, which is going to be really, really, really cool. But um, I think for the best bang for the buck, I mean, we could probably put 10,000 uh, robots on Mars for what it's going to take to put one human on Mars. So, uh, I mean, so, yeah, but it's relatively easy to put a human on the moon. Let's go to the moon. Let's see what's there. Let's, let's worry about the moon right now. And uh, Mars can take care of itself a little bit later on. Now, you've gotten into paleontology you love scuba diving. What other passions and hobbies have you picked up in your pseudo retirement? Well, you don't think that's enough. Uh, <laughs> you don't have any more time um, or money for anymore. <laughs> My wife would say, that's enough, Albert, you've done enough. Um, no, I, uh, of course, I'm continuing to write uh, that the newest memoirs, Don't Blow Yourself Up, which is about uh, 40 years after I graduated from high school. So it's kind of the, the real sequel of um, of Rocket Boys, October Sky, um, but um, well, one thing is one thing that's really taken quite a bit of my time in the last few years is uh, we we uh, have a house in St. John Virgin Islands, which was completely, totally, utterly destroyed by Hurricane Irma, followed by Hurricane Maria in uh, 2017. So um, uh, I I spent uh, no about two and a half years. Uh, spending most of my time down there rebuilding it. It's for sale, by the way. Now, uh, I had so much fun rebuilding it, I decided it, it's, it, it's for a younger couple than, than us. Uh, it, it deserves to go let to uh, else enjoy young it people. Yeah, let somebody else enjoy it. And I did enjoy rebuilding it uh, or, or learning how. I had 
basically to become, uh, I had to form my own little construction company down, <laughs> down there to do it. So that was fun. I'm also um, have been um, uh, Mike Pence, uh, when he was vice president, appointed me um, to the National Space Council. Um, and we're not all that busy, don't get me wrong, but, um, but occasionally uh, I'm asked my, my advice. Uh, and also I'm on the board, and this one takes more time and is a lot more fun. I'm on the board of space camp here in Huntsville. Uh, so I do spend quite a bit of time uh, out there. I love their programs that they have out there, and I'm just really, really tickled to be on the board. I was actually the um, the board chair uh, in 2019 when we had the 50th anniversary of, um, of Apollo 11, um, and I ended up sitting beside uh, Buzz Aldrin, um, who, who I've met a few times before, but I hadn't spent much time with. But we had quite a bit of time together just sitting there waiting for the vice president to show up and make his speech, which turned out to be the Artemis speech. Uh, that we were going back to the moon, and uh, uh, Buzz was a little bit deaf, so he kept asking me what the vice president was saying, and uh, and his his uh, his uh, girlfriend that was with him just kept hushing him because he was speaking so loud. But uh, I was trying to explain what uh, the vice president was saying as we were going along. He, uh, but I, I do remember uh, Buzz saying. Uh, when I told him that we were going back in 24, he went, "No, no, that's way too uh, no. We won't, we won't do that." <laughs> so it turned out that Buzz was right. <laughs> Buzz gets a, a pass. He gets some carte blanche with uh, being a little loud in front of the vice president. <laughs> exactly, precisely. Um, and and uh, oh, uh, I mean, uh, Buzz is a character. He's always fun to talk to. It's amazing, you know, how uh, bright and. Uh, energetic uh he still is so uh, i was proud to proud to sit there with him when was the last time you launched a rocket um well um i actually launching one you mean pushing the button and watching yeah, it fly not, uh, not, a, not a big nasa rocket but like that you <laughs> went out whether it was one you built or like an sd's rocket or something at space Camp. <laughs> yeah it hadn't been that long i guess it was probably about this time last year uh, I was out at uh, space camp. What I like, um, what I what I like to do is to talk to the teachers that are when they come out uh, on scholarship to space camp every year. And by the way, uh, go to www.spacecamp.com. There are a number of scholarships out there for um, for younger people and also teachers uh, to come to space camp. And so I go out and talk to them. Um, throughout the summer and uh, tell my little Colwood stories and get them laughing and also um, uh, teach them a little bit about Sputnik history and all that kind of thing. And then sometimes I have to be over there on the day that they're going to launch rockets, which is a lot of fun because they have to build them. I don't have to mess with it. And invariably, one of those uh, really nice school teachers will ask me, oh, Homer, will you come over here and help me push the button? And I'm always really, really happy to do that. And um, also, uh, exactly this time of year is our uh, what we call SIVIS, which is our uh, visually impaired uh, space camp program, which is run by a fellow West Virginian, Dan Oates. And so uh, I go out there. I was just out there yesterday. And so I guess you could say that I launched my last rocket yesterday, although I didn't push the button. I was there uh, watching them do it. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing in the rocket business these days. That's great. It's, it's kind of reminiscent of in, in the final chapter of your book, you talk about how your dad finally came out and you let him push the button on, on the final rocket. Yeah, uh, that, um, 
Yeah, that's a, that's another inter, I guess interesting discussion about the difference between the book and the movie. Yes, I mean my dad had never come to any of our launches, and um, the way it all started was my mom saying, "You got to impress your dad. He's never going to let you go to college. He's got to sign the co-sign the check here. I got the money, but he's got to co-sign the check." And so that's the way it kind of started. But that brought out a lot more of the father-son relationship and how much I longed to get my father's approval. He approved my older brother, a big football star and all that, but I, it, it, he had difficulty really really caring about me, I guess. Um, but so there we were at the final launch, and Dad finally shows up after the National Science Fair and everything, and um, it just gets into my head to let him launch this rocket. Well, uh, which he did, and he was delighted about it. He had never imagined that we were that sophisticated. I think that really delighted him. My dad was, uh, was, a, was a, although he didn't have a degree, he was a consummate engineer, and so he was very impressed by what we were doing. He got so excited that uh, he had black lung disease, and he started coughing, and he, I had seen him pass out before from that, so I went over and put my arm around him and held him up, Well, well and that's the way I wrote it in the book, but of course, for the movies, I'm, I see that they're going to have the father put his arm around the son, that's and funny. I go... You know, Joe, um, um, couldn't we just film it both ways and see which way you'd like it best? And Joe went, no, Homer, we're not. Uh, we have had this entire movie where the son has been looking for approval from the dad. And do you think I'm going to pass up a moment in screen history where the father finally puts his arm around that boy? No, that's the way we're going to do it. And I went, yeah, you know, that's the way it really should have happened anyway. So go for it, Joe. And that's the way they did it. <laughs> and and you talk about the black lung. Eventually, that is what, what took his life. It did. Not as early as they say in the movie. I think they show him passing away in 1970. So he actually passed away in 1989. Uh, it was from black lung. It, he suffered from it horribly over many years. Um, but he did live long enough to see uh, my first book, Torpedo Junction, come out. And uh, uh, he liked that. He, he, he finally saw, and, he, and by then I was working for NASA. So he finally saw, well, maybe this boy's going to turn out to be something okay, barely okay, but okay anyway. So uh, I'm glad he uh, lived long enough to, uh, to see that. Living in Myrtle Beach, did you ever take your parents to a, a NASA launch? No, I never did. Um, uh, I don't think I could have got got either one of them out of Myrtle Beach long enough to do that. <laughs> My mom loved it, loved the beach, and of course, Dad, again with his black lung, it was very difficult for him to uh, to travel. So now yeah. uh, he did worry about um, when uh, Challenger went down. That for some reason affected him uh, quite a bit. Uh, he had. He had um, some friends that they met once a week and um, sat around and played poker or whatever the heck they did. And they talked about their kids. I'm sure Dad mostly bragged about my brother, but occasionally it came up that I worked for NASA. And um, uh, so when Challenger went down, I, he was questioned closely by his friends on what I was doing to make that better. And so he got on the phone with me and actually... Uh, talked to me about it, and I told him I'm on the SRB redesign. He liked that. Oh, you're going to finally do some engineering work. And I went, yeah. And uh, and so he went back and bragged to his buddies that, that uh, Sonny was going to fix uh, the shuttle. And in the book, you talk about how after he passed, your mom gave you a box of items that he had kept for you. And there was a pretty special one in particular in that box that has since flown into space. 
Right. You know, and that's, that's the thing about um, when you have parents or a father that comes out of World War II and the Depression, uh, my whole generation was, uh, it's not just me. Fathers tend to be distant back then. They weren't huggers. Uh, they weren't your pal. They weren't your buddy. They weren't your friend <laughs> at all. And uh, uh, trying to get in. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I kind of left that up to the mom, too. So they were a little bit distant in many ways. And uh, they basically gave a roof over your head, food on the table. What else do you want? You know, and so um, so I come from a generation that had fathers like that. That was uh, really, really uh, uh, not that uh, not that unusual. So. So, yeah. Um, uh, so I worked I worked really hard over the years, I guess, always, sometimes even when I wasn't even aware of it, to um, to earn my dad's uh, approval, like a lot of us did, I think, out of that generation. And then that that rocket nozzle that was in the book. Oh, the nozzle. Yes. That actually well, so, did get to fly to space. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was one of the things I didn't realize about my dad was, in fact, he was very proud of what I had done. And although I didn't realize that there was anything left over from the days when we built those rockets back in West Virginia, um, before he passed away, he convinced my mom to box up all the, the old things that they still had of us, the old toys and so on that we had and to ship them to us. And he had passed away by the time that I got around to looking through those boxes, and I only found one that had his handwriting on it. And inside of it was a um, a rocket nozzle, um, perfectly crafted steel De La Bell nozzle from the machine shop in Colwood, West Virginia, and also um, that uh, National Science Fair medal that I thought was long since lost. And so he had saved those things for me. And you know, I could, again, I I would question. Uh, I think I wrote the whole book <laughs> Rocket Boys because I know I did. Because I saw that and I went, you know what, there was a lot more going on that maybe I didn't even really realize. And so I like to say I got a million dollars worth of psychotherapy writing Rocket Boys that I didn't even know I needed. And there's such a strong thread that goes through that book about the father-son relationship. And then, again, when I wrote the latest, um, Don't Blow Yourself Up, that becomes a very strong thread uh, throughout the book. Uh, No matter what I did, my dad was always out there and... Even um, subconsciously, I think I was always trying to do my very, very best and uh, seeking his approval. Even if he wasn't and so, a leader. Yeah, and, yeah, mom was. And uh, so, you know, again, a lot of my generation has this experience. Calling home, dad picks up the phone, hello, uh, hey, it's funny. And he said, I'll get your mom. <laughs> you know, so that's all you hear out of him. And so uh, we, we get kind of used to that. But because of having that, rocket nozzle. I was using it for a paperweight when uh, Pat Trenner was the editor of Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. I'd written several articles for her. She called one night and wanted uh, to know if I could uh, give her rather rapidly a 2,000-word article. Um, they needed that for a space, a filler space in the magazine. And for some reason, I looked across at that rocket nozzle and I said, Pat, I could rock, write you 2,000 words on when I was a kid growing up in the coal fields of West Virginia and built rockets. And um, and she was completely, totally, utterly underwhelmed with this idea. But I thought, well, maybe there's something there. So I did it. She loved it. Her whole staff loved it. It came out. You know, she said, do you have pictures? What do you have? I had the pictures of the Rocket Boys. I had that science fair medal and all that kind of stuff. 
And because Dad had sent me that nozzle, I think that uh, I ended up writing that article. And because of the article, I started getting calls uh, from New York publishers who knew me from the first book, Torpedo Junction, and then Hollywood started to call, just based on the article. And the question was, are you going to write a memoir on this? Because memoirs were uh, starting to get really popular uh, at that time in the mid-1990s with Angela's Ashes was the big uh, breakout hit as a memoir, and uh, they said, are you going to write a book about this? And I said, well, I am now, and um, again, I write about this, and don't blow yourself up about um, trying to figure out how to properly write this book, uh, having some false starts, and then uh, right in the midst of it, having Hollywood come weighing in about um, tell us more and send us chapters and all this kind of stuff. So it was a very interesting process, um, writing the book, and writing it cor- correctly so that it did turn out to be a, a very readable book. Uh, and then also uh, watching Hollywood take that and um, and turning that into a motion picture when uh, one that I was allowed to be on set uh, much of the time. And generally they don't want to have either the writer and certainly not the subject on set. But for some reason, um, uh, they allowed that. Chuck Gordon, who was a producer, he did Field of Dreams, and he liked the story because of the father-son angle that you can see through Field of Dreams. It's the same kind of thing, the son seeking approval of the father. And so uh, he allowed me to be on set and uh, and uh, work with the actors and get to know those boys, Jake Dillenhall and the rest of them, Chad Lindbergh. Uh, get to know him. Um, the only one that um, I really didn't uh, uh, get to know too well was Chris Cooper, who played my dad, who's very professional uh, and kind of a method actor, who really did not want to interface with me very much because he wanted to stay totally in character. Uh, but he did unbend when my mom came on set. Uh, I had given him some things. My dad, uh, mind tag, his lucky silver dollar, his wristwatch, his Masonic ring. And he was wearing those when he met my mom, and my mom uh, was just astonished to see those things. And he sat down and talked to her for a long, long time. He, my mom, probably got to know him better than any of us, uh, any of us did. Wow, yeah, he's he's a very good actor, and and the movie was very well, very well done. Um, I would say. Oh, it was. That the I, book I is, totally agree. The book is definitely better. <laughs> well, of course, it always is, right? Uh, I could not ask for a better adaptation than October Sky was for Rocket Boy. Um, of course, you don't know when you see it filmed, and, and you have some questions about some of the things that they're doing. Um, they're, they also work through awful weather, and I, again, I write about, uh, write about that in the, in the new memoir. Um, it was supposed to be a, a month-long uh, shoot. It took uh, two and a half months uh, because of the weather was awful, uh, and, uh, and if you you uh, when you watch the movie you'll see most of it is filmed outdoors and so they really had to work around all of that there's not too many interior sets that they that they could do so there was a lot of frustration uh on set they had laura dern for a very limited amount of time and laura uh god bless her wanted her part to be bigger miss riley the miss riley part and so she had me come and talk to her a couple of times which of course Who's not going to turn down an opportunity to come and talk to Laura Dern? Yeah. But then I heard uh, from the producers that all they were hearing out of Laura was about, well, Homer said, well, Homer said. So uh, that was the only time I was truly kicked off set for a while. They said, you need to go back to Huntsville while we got Laura here. 
but she did. Uh, she did get her part expanded, and they used everything that she wanted to be expanded on, and uh, which which was really cool. She saw that Mr. Raleigh was a much more important character than how they had uh, had written it for her. Uh, so again, but you don't know. All you see is what's happening on set. Uh, I saw uh, some of the rushes and so on. I could see that that uh, Joe really cared about lighting and about uh, camera placement and all that, but whether or not he was telling a cogent story or not, I couldn't really tell. And I'm not exactly sure directors know either till the editor gets hold of it. And so um, the first edit that I saw uh, several months before the final edit, um, it I, I still liked it a lot. Uh, what they had done was just pretty amazing to me. Um, uh, how it all pulled together, and then they kept uh, showing it to different audiences and making it better and better. The only thing that I didn't really like about that process was some audience members said they didn't like the title Rocket Boys, and um, um, they, they sounded like a kids' movie, and uh, and they decided, well, you know, we want women to come out to see this movie, and uh, uh, so we better come up with a better title and they ended up with uh, October Sky which is an anagram of Rocket Boys you take the letter letters of Rocket Boys and move it around you spell out October Sky Joe Johnson came up with that and um, so I didn't like that of course an author uh, wants the movie to be have the same title as the book of course because you sell a lot of books that way right but um, I uh, ultimately they were going to do what they were going to do. It happened. A mass market uh, came out with the title October Sky, which was uh, which sold a lot of books. I had no complaint about that, but uh, I would have preferred they stuck with Rocket Boys. But uh, things happen the way they're supposed to happen. I suppose. Well, well, in order, I would say the, the movie, the book, and then just your life story is truly prodigious. I know it's a word that is used in in the book and in the movie. <laughs> from it's, I think it's Quentin. And, and the definition Absolutely. is truly remarkably or impressively great in extent, size, or degree. <laughs> and, and this truly is an amazing story. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, again, it's, um, I think uh, that I was uh, kind of born to write it. I thought it was born to write Torpedo Junction. It took me like 15 years uh, of risking life and limb, diving on these deep shipwrecks and U-boats off of North Carolina and other places. Uh, and gathering all that information and uh, and writing that book. I thought really for the longest time that was the book I was meant to write, but it turned out I was just being prepped in a way uh, to write Rocket Boys. That was, uh, I, I was meant to write it and uh, kind of bring to life um, uh, what happened to not only me, but a lot of young people um, in that era when Sputnik happened, all of our lives changed one way or the other. It certainly changed in the coal fields, but all across the United States it changed. And uh, to bring forth that story was just, um, for some reason, I was chosen to, uh, to do that. And I, and I had at that time the tools to do it. So I'm very grateful uh, to the good, good Lord upstairs for uh, allowing me to do this. And it turned out, uh, well, it turned out absolutely prodigious. How can people find your your books and continue to follow your your amazing adventure? Well, uh, probably best way is to go out to our website, which is uh, homerhickam.com. You have to know how to spell Hickam. It's H-I-C-K-A-M. Um, there I've got all the books. I've written 19 so far. And it also has uh, a lot of the background on the Rocket Voice and 
so on. I am on Facebook a couple of places. Um, I have a uh, Homer Hickam official page, probably the easiest one to find. And then, unfortunately, sadly, I'm on Twitter, which always gets me in trouble. Uh, so, um, uh, so those are the places where I can be found. Well, being we connected on Twitter, I'm really grateful that you are. <laughs> well, thank you. And I know thank on your you. website, it's way, too easy to, it's way too easy to get in trouble on that uh, on that uh, on that website. We should all we should all write what we want to write and then delete it. That's yeah, the everything is out there forever now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and on your website, people can support some of the causes that you are involved in, such as the space camp and uh, some other scholarship programs that you've created. Yeah, in, I've uh, got a couple in your of father's jobs. name. Yes, I've got a couple of those. Uh, the one in Dad's name is at uh, Marshall uh, Marshall University. Um, but principally, um, we uh, uh, these days our our biggest. Uh, uh, charity, if you will, is Space Camp. Uh, since I'm on the board out there, I've got a couple of scholarships out there. Uh, so by all means, uh, go there, support what you can, or start your own scholarship. That's uh, that's that's my suggestion. Don't just support mine. Get out there. We we need to support this um, the generation that are students right now and our teachers. We need to support them in every way we can. One really good way to do that uh, is. Uh, through Space Camp, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. So, um, and also, if you can, you know, come yourself. Uh, we do have adult Space Camp, um, but um, for young people, uh, uh, no matter who you are, uh, come on and go. You, you will never regret it, and uh, you not only have a lot of fun, you'll make friends for a lifetime, and and learn a little bit too. STEM education is one of our our primary focuses in this podcast, and the things that we do here in Northern Arizona. And I, I really appreciate you being with us today because even just having this conversation brings interest into those, those things just like the movie did for me so many years ago and how we can continue to share that with kids. Well, that's fantastic. And thank you for letting me know that, uh, that um, it inspired you. That makes me feel really good. That makes my day. Um, we, we do hear that a lot, uh, but we can't hear it enough, I think, that... Um, that Rocket Boys and that movie, uh, I, I know it inspires a lot of people. I, I get emails today from all over the world, uh, India, China, Pakistan, um, Europe. It doesn't matter where, but I'm getting all kinds of uh, still feedback uh, from young people who see that movie and it inspires them uh, to do wonderful things with their life. And that's what I always say. Yes, STEM is very, very important, but if that's not where your passion is, nonetheless, you want to follow that story of the Rocket Boys and see how they worked really hard and they were successful. And uh, that's what you can do, too. If we can do it, uh, I know you can, too. So uh, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for having me on this podcast. And um, I'm glad uh, that you're out there inspiring folks. And um, I'll try to do what I can as well. Thank you, Homer. Thank you. You don't have to be a professional astronomer or have fancy equipment to see amazing objects in the night sky. You just have to know where to look. Join us next month to learn more about your binoculars, telescope in the sky, and follow the Northern Arizona Astronomical Consortium at facebook.com slash nazastro. From the Rockstar Studios in Prescott, Arizona, I'm Adam England, the Backyard Astronomer.